You're listening to audio from the Rail City campus of CA Church. We are a church fervently committed to bringing the good news to the city of Port Moody. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. All right. Good morning. My name is Chris. I'm from the Way Church Vancouver, a newer church plant, similar to yourselves. And I'm excited to be here this morning, though I will say I'm not thrilled with the text that Cam has asked me to speak on. (laughs) And he's not even here. So I'll talk to him about that later. Uh, But we are in Ephesians 6. If you have your Bible, you can open up to there. That's where we're going to live today. And it is a harder passage for a number of reasons. And I want to start by just acknowledging a hard and complicated truth. And here it is. People who have claimed to be followers of Jesus have supported slavery from the Bible. They've claimed divine authority for their racism. It remains a profound tragedy that some Christians oppose the abolition of slavery with Bible verses on their lips. Jonathan Edwards is often called America's greatest theologian. It's not always known that he both participated in and defended what is sometimes called America's original sin, slavery. I have a young black friend who tells me how difficult it was for her at her old church to hear Jonathan Edwards quoted approvingly, knowing that he defended and participated in the institution of slavery. That's a reality. Can't hide from it, can't sweep it under the rug. We have to acknowledge the horror of it. But at the same time, when it comes to the transatlantic slave trade or the civil rights movement, it was also Christians like William Wilberforce who led the charge in dismantling New World slavery, and preachers like Martin Luther King Jr., who led the march for civil rights in the United States. Historian Alvin Schmidt points out that two-thirds of the American abolitionists in the mid-1830s were Christian clergymen, including people like Elijah Lovejoy, Lyman Beecher, Edward Beecher, Charles Finney, Theodore Weld, William Lloyd Garrison, and many, many more leading the charge against slavery. It was British evangelicals like John Wesley, William Wilberforce, even Charles Spurgeon, who also condemned its evils. And as Abraham Lincoln said, both groups were quoting the Bible. So who's right and who's wrong? We need to take a closer look. And we will today. And I want to read to you the text of scripture. But before I do that, I want to pray for us. Lord, we come with humble hearts. We come not to stand over your word and pick and choose what we'll receive, but instead to kneel under it and acknowledge its authority over us. And Holy Spirit, you inspired these words. And so I pray that you would come now and illuminate them to our understanding. 
and that you would speak to us. And even though there's a lot of teaching, I pray not just for information, but for transformation of our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the passage that Cam asked me to speak on. And I'm emphasizing that Cam asked me to speak on this. This is not the scripture I would have chosen. There's no jokes today. As you can tell from the intro. Um, it says this. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So you've been studying the book of Ephesians. And in chapter 5 and 6, Paul works within the structure of what is called Greco-Roman household codes, addressing husbands and wives, fathers and children, and masters and slaves. And while doing so, he applies the gospel or the good news about Jesus in such a way that it subverts or surprises the cultural expectations of the day. And so Paul writes that the husband is the head of the wife. No surprise there. His hearers would have expected that. But then Paul goes on to say that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church. A husband must give up his life to serve and honor his wife. That would have been a surprise. Like it would have upended everything his first century hearers thought they knew about the relationship between husbands and wives. Paul tells children to obey their parents. No surprise there. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It was expected. But then Paul goes on to write, Fathers, don't exasperate your children and bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The father in particular is told to watch how he speaks to and acts towards his children. Not only that, the father is to be actively involved in their religious education. That would have been a surprise. How about this passage on masters and slaves? Well, there are some surprises here that would have been shocking to the first century hearers. But first we need to, before we look at some of those, first we need to understand what was meant by the word doulos, the Greek word translated as slave in this passage. There is no more tiresome error in history than when we import meanings and definitions and understandings shaped by our cultural moment back into the first century. The result is we misunderstand what was going on or, or you know, what the reality a word described to its first century hearers. And when we hear the word slave, we naturally think about new world slavery. Our understanding shaped by movies like 12 Years a Slave and race-based chattel slavery. But in the first century, things were different. And let me describe at least three ways. First, in the Roman Empire, slaves comprised approximately one-third of the population of important cities like Ephesus, and they were represented in all spheres of society. Second, slavery was sometimes chosen 
by those who did not have the means of repaying outstanding debts. And then third, in many circumstances, slaves could earn money, own property, and even buy their freedom. And this led to the institution of slavery being in a constant state of flux because whereas through conquest or other means, new slaves were inserted into the system, it's also estimated that from the years 81 BC to 49 BC, up to 16,000 slaves per year were released from their servitude. And in this context, when a slave was freed, it did not necessarily mean that their situation was any better. In fact, it could get worse if they removed themselves out from under the protection of a rich master. This is why when sometimes slaves were freed in the first century, they stayed employed in the same household. And so let me sum up by quoting one scholar. He says this, in the first century, slaves were not distinguishable from free persons by race, by speech, or by clothing. They were sometimes more highly educated than their owners and held responsible professional positions. Uh, some persons sold themselves into slavery for economic or social advantage. They could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years of service or by their 30s at the latest. They were not denied the right of public assembly and were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. They could accumulate savings to buy their freedom. Their natural inferiority was not assumed. And so in other words, all I'm trying to show is that slavery as understood by the original hearers of the New Testament was diverse and complex as a social phenomenon. And for this reason, some translations have chosen to translate the Greek word doulos as bondservant to help us avoid wrong assumptions or misunderstandings. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, Scripture condemns clearly the capturing of human beings and selling them into slavery. It condemns slave traders. That verse alone is clear enough to condemn the slave trade that we're more familiar with in our recent history. And so the word slave in the New Testament is describing a different reality. Nevertheless, there is evidence that some slaves were treated brutally in the first century depending on their master. And so I'm not arguing for a second that slavery in the first century was a good thing. There was an evil dehumanizing aspect to it. All I'm saying is that it was different and complex. And so the question we need to ask is people who love the Bible and read the Bible or people who are new to the Bible and are prone to be critical of the Bible, what we need to ask is what does the New Testament actually do to address this matter? And so in the passage we're looking at today, Paul recognizes you know, that this master-slave dynamic was a given reality reflected in the culture and in the lives of people coming from the culture to the church. It was not an institution that was going away in a day. And so what Paul does is he regulates the behavior of those who are caught up in the institution. And so let me just pull some things out of the text I read earlier. Uh, he tells slaves to obey their masters. He tells them to do their jobs and finish their assignments. He says, earn favor through your sincerity and hard work, knowing that your master is ultimately Jesus, and he will reward you in the end. And what's key and what's fascinating in the first century context is here Paul is addressing them in public as persons with a will and a choice, not as property. And then Paul also tells the masters 
you have a master named Jesus. Treat your slaves in the way he treats you. No threatening, no abuse. You both have the same master, and he doesn't play favorites. As you look over the shoulder of your workers, the God of the universe is looking over your shoulders, so watch how you treat the people in your household. And the whole community is hearing these instructions read. And all of that is subversive in the first century. But here's my argument. My argument is that the New Testament does more than just regulate the behavior of the individuals participating in this institution. The New Testament does more than just tell masters to be kind and fair and slaves to be respectful and hardworking. The Apostle Paul and the New Testament as a whole do something far subtler and with far more potential to produce long-term change, not just in social structures, but in the hearts of people. And let me give you this illustration for all of you who are gardeners, which I am not, so this illustration could be wrong. But <laughs> the point, you'll get it. Um, there is this plant, it's called the giant hogweed. And uh, this plant is not friendly or inconspicuous. A giant hogweed can grow between like two meters and seven meters tall. And this plant can burn you and cause welts to form on your skin with like minimal contact. And the hogweed's also disastrous for local ecology. So I've heard. And the problem is you can't just chop it down. Like an axe is actually inefficient. So is attempting to pull it up by its roots. The roots are too strong and deep and the plant will just grow back with a vengeance. And so the best way to kill the plant so that it's gone for good is to inject some herbicide into the stalk. And the herbicide will poison the entire plant, causing it to wilt and wither from the inside out. And I want to suggest to you that this is what the New Testament does with the institution of slavery. Let me quote one theologian. He writes this. Slavery was so pervasive in that day, that attacking it would be like demanding that all Christians today give up their home mortgages, to use the apt illustration of one commentator. To attack slavery straight up would not do any good, would make the condition of Christian slaves far worse, and would result in the marginalization of the Christian faith. And the end result of that would be that the evils of slavery would be perpetuated, not ended. Slavery was such an evil that it needed to be attacked effectively. So how does the New Testament poison the institution from the inside out in the writings of the Apostle Paul? Well, I want you to think with me back through the letter of Ephesians. In chapter 1, we're told that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ, that we're predestined in love, that we're chosen to be holy and blameless, that we're adopted as sons and daughters, we're rescued from our slavery to sin, redeemed, made new, filled with the Holy Spirit who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to come. These realities were true for masters and slaves. The slave is now your brother or your sister. You're part of the same eternal family with the same heavenly father. You all share in the same inheritance. The spiritual blessings are all yours in Christ, slave or free. You see, the gospel starts to level this uneven playing field, making a family out of us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul argues that Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, 
have equal access to God through Christ. That the cross has put to death our animosity. He has made us one people. We're all a holy temple. We're all part of his one body. We all have gifts to build up the church. We're all called to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is true of slaves. This is true of masters. Elsewhere, Paul writes that, this is Galatians 3, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is inviting people to reimagine their reality and their social dynamics in light of the gospel. All are made in the image of God. All are sinful. And all are loved. Equal in creation and equal in salvation. You're all one in Christ. You see, racism is often fueled by the worship of race, the overvaluing of race. It's making race more important than Jesus. Classism is valuing your class or your status more than Christ. Certain versions of nationalism make your nation more important than Jesus. Acrimonious, fiercely bipartisan politics where the other is always evil makes government more important than Jesus. The end result is disunity and tribalism. But when we worship Christ, we're all one in Christ. When Christ is most important, what unites us is infinitely greater than anything that can divide us. And every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And those who are not in Christ, we're to love them and serve them and honor them, even if they treat us poorly, just like Christ. Slave or master, all one in Christ, equal in creation, Equal before the cross, all sinful, all loved. That's how the gospel starts to go to work on the hearts of people in a fractured, divided community. And you can see how it works itself out in another New Testament letter called Philemon or Philemon. I don't know, I've been doing this for years. I don't even know what's the right way to say it. So I'm going to switch between the two. Uh, The book's called Philemon. And the context is that Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus has very likely cheated or stole from Philemon and ran away. Now Onesimus finds the apostle Paul likely in Rome, and he becomes a Christian and helps Paul with ministry. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter filled with requests about how Philemon should treat his runaway slave. Under Roman law, Philemon could have put his slave to death. But listen how the gospel changes this evil, very entrenched reality. Listen to the words that the Apostle Paul uses. And try to put yourself in the place of the community who hears this letter being read. Paul writes this about Onesimus. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. 
Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. This is my very heart I'm sending to you. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. What does Paul do here? He calls Onesimus his very heart. He expresses his affection for both Philemon and Onesimus. And he loves them both, and both are dear to him, regardless of their social position or status. He calls Onesimus his son and Philemon's brother. Treat him, not as property, but as a man and as a brother. And then more than that, Paul says, welcome him as you would welcome me. Let his reception be like my reception. And Paul goes, it's a little cheeky. He's like, and just remember, you owe me your very life. Like Philemon wouldn't know about Jesus or salvation if Paul hadn't shared the gospel with him. In this way, Philemon owes Paul his very life. And he goes, accept Onesimus like you would accept me. Paul who could order him to do what's right. Paul who was an apostle. Paul, to whom the resurrected Lord appeared and commissioned to plant churches. Paul, who received the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James, and John, who were Jesus' closest friends and followers. Paul, who was one of the most influential thinkers in all of human history. Welcome your runaway slave who probably stole from you the same way you would welcome me. Think about that. Let the implications of Paul's request sink in. Treat him like a man, treat him like a brother, treat him like you would treat me to whom you owe your very life. How can slavery survive in any meaningful sense if that is now your framework? You are commanded to treat the slave like you treat an apostle in the kingdom of Jesus. The injustice and lack of dignity inherent in slavery or owning another human being as property must wither and die from the inside out. Something new has come into the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus, unleashing this tornado of grace and liberation and new life into our world. You see, the New Testament doesn't condone slavery or enshrine it as a divine mandate. The scriptures regulate slavery as this complex social phenomenon, different in many ways than the transatlantic slave trade we're familiar with. But more than that, it injects fatal poison into the heart of the institution by making slave and master brothers and sisters in Christ equally loved equally valuable. So you have these first century congregations where there are these social dynamics and divisions. There's master and slave. And they hear letters read publicly. You treat your runaway slave who probably stole from you 
the same way you would treat an apostle in the kingdom of God. Changes everything. And so what does it mean for us today? I know sometimes people take this text and want to apply it to your nine-to-five job. Feels weird to me. I don't know about the correspondence. Not sure it's there. But preachers want to be relevant. Um, And I have sympathy for that. And look, I've done it. I've done it. I've done three-part series on work from this text, probably. It's not true. I haven't. But I've done it at least once. Uh, Talk on work. But let me do this instead. Speaker and author Danielle Strickland tells the story about meeting a woman who worked hard to change the way her nation viewed prostitution. And prostitution has been called the world's oldest profession, but this woman was convinced that it's really the world's oldest oppression. And when she commissioned a study on the realities of prostitution, she found out that, quote, it was a slave master that kept women, mostly poor, uneducated ethnic minorities, in absolute hell. One significant study I saw recently showed that 92% of women being prostituted want out. And so this remarkable woman, she, this was in Europe, started, you know, went about trying to change the mind of the nation through education and confrontation. And in 10 years, street prostitution decreased by 60%. And here are the two keys this woman gave to Danielle. She said, first, you need to truly understand oppression. And then second, you need to imagine a better world. Now, these are guiding principles, obviously more complex in their implementation, of course. But she said, no, you need to understand the oppression, and then you need to imagine a better world. Strickland tells another story about a friend who came out of prostitution, but refused to acknowledge or deal with what had happened to her. She refused to talk about it and process it. And Danielle didn't confront her. She just prayed until one day this woman had a vision or a dream of Jesus as a lion. And Danielle explained to her that God was a God of justice and he was for her. And Jesus is the lion of Judah who's promised to set prisoners free and right all wrongs. And after that vision, something shifted in her heart. The next day she started weeping and sobbing, which was very rare for this very you know, tough, hard woman. And eventually stuff started to come out and she spoke about a time where where she'd worked all night and she went back to the hotel in the morning where her boyfriend was and he took all the money and made her sleep on the floor. And she kept repeating through tears, he made me sleep on the floor. Like he made me sleep on the floor. Worse things had happened, but that one stood out. He made me sleep on the floor. And to quote Danielle, The woman was revisiting her past in order to confront her oppressor. Understand oppression and imagine a better world. And at the center of our story is Jesus. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God who entered history and suffered injustice and experienced oppression. 
And then Jesus died for our sins, and he rose from the dead in victory over the grave, and he sent us the Holy Spirit so that we would have power to live out the better world in the middle of the broken pieces of this one. And that's our call, that's our mandate, to see captives set free, healed, restored. You will never sleep on the floor again. Take my room, live in my house. The gospel comes with a house key. Slavery in its various forms still exists in our world, and the good news of Jesus opposes it, and so must those who follow in the way of Jesus. And there are so many needs and so many issues, and you can't do something about everything, but you can do something about something. And one of the somethings that we must care about as followers of Jesus is those who are oppressed and those who are enslaved. That's why our church supports organizations like Ally Global that works to restore people who've been rescued out of modern-day slavery because of the gospel, because of the New Testament, because of Jesus, never in spite of him. And I want to read, the team can come up, but I want to read to you a passage. It's from Isaiah 58. Understand the oppression. Imagine a better world. That's all the prophets ever did. And listen to what Isaiah 58 says. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Amen. Every week as a church, one of the ways we respond to the word of God is by celebrating communion. And there's going to be a person on either side with communion. And communion's a moment in our life together where we remember the body of Jesus given for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us. Where he died in our place for our sins, bearing our judgment, removing 
the barrier that separated us from a living God. We're reminded that Jesus has liberated us from the ultimate oppressor, Satan, sin, and death. And he has won the victory and we get to participate in it. And one of the beautiful things in the first century and now is that everyone in the community who chose to follow Jesus was welcomed at the same table as brothers and sisters, as family, as equally valuable and equally loved and equally forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That the ground was and still is level at the foot of the cross and all are welcomed and loved and uplifted there when we come to him in repentance and faith. And so let me pray for us and the communion team will come up and when you're ready, you can take communion. So Jesus, I thank you for your gospel as a liberating force in our world that has radically reshaped again and again social dynamics and confronted oppression and set people free and restored dignity and brought new life. And I thank you that you're still doing that today in hearts and minds all over the world through your gospel, your life, your death for sin, your resurrection from the dead. You are bringing new life and freedom and liberty and we get to join you in what you're doing. We don't have to take the burden on because your yoke is easy and light and you're gonna do the work, but we do get to participate in what you're doing in the world, in your great act of liberation and restoration and renewal. Thank you that you invite us into that and we get to join you in that. And thank you for this table, the reminder it is, that when we fail and when we fall short, you still welcome us, you forgive us, and you make us new. So we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, I really do invite uh, your ministry in our hearts and lives as we respond. Just say you're welcome here, Holy Spirit. We ask you to have your way uh, in our hearts and minds for your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca slash railcity to find out more information about getting involved in the life and mission of the Rail City campus of CA Church.